I present to um, David Haynes, who will be doing the second part of this presentation this morning. Uh, David's family and my family go way back. My wife's parents and his grandparents lived two or three miles apart and were very, very close friends. I met David for the first time when he moved to the Three Rivers area. We're going to lose David. He's moving to Minneapolis to teach in Bethlehem Seminary, which is the ministry associated with John Piper. Uh, David has his doctorate in his PhD in philosophy from Laval University, as well as a master's in theology. And he's a, he's a good apologist. I've always been happy to work with him. So this morning, I'm going to start out by talking about are the Gospels reliable? Um, I've been teaching a lot through the Gospels in different churches over the last four or five years, and that question has come up. I, I, I have presented this type of material in French a great deal. Uh, if I get some French words here and there, you have to excuse me. Um, I'm going to be right up front about sources. One of my favorite people to listen to in this type of subject is Dr. Peter Williams. Um, he is CEO of Tyndale House in Cambridge. One of my projects right now is doing a, French, a fresh translation of the French Bible. And um, Dr. Williams is responsible for a Greek text, which has come out co-editioned by Tyndale House and by Crossway Books recently, which I think um, has really um, established the very best Greek text of the of the uh, New Testament. He's a, he's a great scholar. I'm appreciating very deeply. He's an internationally recognized scholar, uh, associate professor at um, Cambridge University. And he's author of the book of the Gospels Reliable, which I recommend and which, from which I've stolen a great deal of this material just to be able to have front. C.S. Lewis talking about Jesus said that Jesus is either a lord, our Lord, or he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. And nowadays, I think people will say more often that he's a legend. And um, can, can we believe the Gospels? Is, is, is what Jesus said, is said to have said, what he is said to have done, is that something we can believe? Is it something we can accept? One of the uh, Bible scholars who is a skeptic, who doesn't believe that any of the Gospels is historic, historical, a man by the name of Bart Ehrman, he, he asks the following questions, and I think that these questions um, state what a lot of people think. Um, he says, what do you suppose happened to the stories about Jesus over the years as they were told and retold, not as disinterested news stories reported by eyewitnesses, but as propaganda meant to convert people to faith, told by people who had heard of them fifth or sixth or 19th hand. Uh, did you ever play the telephone game at a party? I, I imagine most of you have done that. Uh, we tell people they have to whisper. They can only say something once. We go around the room and it becomes very clear that after six or seven conversations, what comes out at the end is nothing at all like what started at the, at the beginning. And Ehrman's theory is that the stories in the gospel started out um, modestly and grew in uh, in in intensity and in content over 100, 200 years before the Gospels were written. And so we ask ourselves, is that how the Gospels were written? I think that our young people are taught that in school and philosophy courses at Seja. Um, so we need to think about that. Um, were these writers living hundreds or thousands of miles away making things up? Um, is there internal evidence? 
that supports the idea that they were eyewitnesses or that they were close to eyewitnesses uh, to the land of Israel and to the events they described. And we'll look at some of these tests to see if the authors knew about the land about which they were writing. Uh, remember, there's no internet, no Google, and no Wikipedia in those days. If I want information on a city somewhere in the world, it takes me about 30 seconds to fire up the computer and go to Wikipedia or somewhere else, and I can find out a great deal about the city and the country. That didn't exist in those days. Um, and uh, there are no trains, no cars or airplanes. We have to understand that someone living in Rome was far away from Palestine. Um, my dad was a sailor. He, he sailed in the Mediterranean. Uh, ships in the Mediterranean were uh, victims of the predominant wind patterns. It was difficult to go against the wind. Traveling between Rome and uh, Israel could take a year or more sometimes, depending on the storms and so on. Uh, the book of Acts tells the story of Paul's journey to Rome. Um, horses were slower than walking, actually, for long distances. And so people didn't travel as much and uh, didn't have access to information about areas where they did not live. So ask yourself the question, where were the Gospels written? And there, there's a very strong consensus on that, both among conservative Christian scholars and those who are more liberal, those who question uh, the content of the Gospels. There's agreement that Matthew was written in Syria, an area of Syria that's about 700 kilometers from Jerusalem. <clears throat> Gospel of Mark was written probably in Rome, very probably in Rome. That's 2,300 kilometers. That's a long way in those days. Gospel of Luke was probably written in Antioch, but possibly in Rome. Antioch is about 740 kilometers from Jerusalem. The Gospel of John was almost certainly written in Ephesus, that's 1,800 kilometers from Jerusalem in modern-day Turkey. The Book of Acts was either written in Antioch or Rome, just like the Gospel of Luke. And so <clears throat> the Gospels were definitely written many, many miles away from the events uh, where the stories they relate took place. I made a bit of a map here that you can see uh, just to make those places more um, Visible for us, you can see Rome. Does my uh, does my cursor show on your screen? Yes, it does. So you can see Rome here, and you can see Ephesus where that is here, and uh, Syria is over here behind Dave Dawson's head, and uh, Jerusalem is here. So you can see that the Gospels were written throughout the Roman Empire, uh, a great distance from where the events take place. One of the things I want to consider with you is Jewish names in the Gospels. <clears throat> Now, 40 years ago, 45 years ago, I was the person responsible in the local church where I was serving to do celebrate weddings. And there were papers to fill up with that, with which the government. And back in those days, I don't remember if uh, Dave Doss remembers that, we were responsible to uh, uh, register babies, to register births and do birth certificates. And we were responsible to do death, death certificates too. So I got to know the names of a number of people. The assembly had grown to three or 400 people at that time and uh, doing a lot of weddings and uh, families were big back in those days. I remember one family that had 16 children, another family that had 14 children. And so um, I got to know a lot of the names and uh, I remember Honoré was one of the names and Alphonse Finn was one of the ladies and uh, 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 Alphonse was one of the men. And um, how many Alphonses are listening to us this morning? How many Alphonse Finns? Um, my point is that names 
change very, very quickly over time. Um, in the roads that were occurring three rivers, which is very French, I don't know any Alphonsines. They've all died, and we're not naming kids Alphonsine anymore. And we're not naming them Honoré anymore. When I go to Haiti, um, I love the names there. Uh, very honorable names. Uh, um, uh, when I go to Switzerland, everybody has a compound name. Pierre Etienne, Paul-André, uh, Anne-Claude, Jean-Jacques. That, that's not common in Quebec. Um, if you read about Spain in the 15th, 16th centuries, people had long, long names. Um, again, very honorific names. Back 40 years ago, everybody's first name in my area was Joseph. If you were a man, if you were a lady, it was Mary. So everybody had three or four names. And everybody's first name was Joseph. Everybody's last name was Mary. The point I'm making is that the names that are being used change very quickly over time. And by looking at the names that are used in a book, we can kind of date it. It gives us evidence about what the author knew. If I were to write a, a book, and that's not going to happen, but if I were write a, to write a book about the, the life in Trois-Rivières in 1960, I could probably use names that would be appropriate for that period because I lived here in that period and I knew those people. Um, but I don't think you could. I don't think that most of you would know what type of names were used in Three Rivers at that time. So here's a list of the names uh, in North America, just for um, uh, for interest sake. You'll see that one of the common at the bottom in the 1970s, one of the most common names in North America for ladies was Jennifer. But 10 years later, it was Jessica. But you see that between 1980 and 1990, Jessica went down from 2.5% of the female population to 1.5%. Look at Michael in 1970. 4% of people in North America, males, were called Michael in 1970, 3.4% in 1980, 2.2% in 1990, and Jacob became one of the most common names in 2000. And so looking at names, and this is the principle I want to draw from this, looking at names in a society, in a book, in literature, you can kind of figure out the date when it was written. Let's look at the Jewish names in Palestine. <clears throat> this research was done in Germany uh, a number of years ago, and um, it they, they studied ancient names in all of um, ancient um, Middle East. And in Palestine, they studied 3,000 names. And uh, they noticed that there was an important difference between the frequency of the names of Jewish people in Palestine and the Jewish people in the diaspora. Uh, the diaspora, of course, is the foreign countries which had a large Jewish population. And there were more Jews living outside of Palestine than there were in Palestine. It's probably the way it is now today, just the same. And so they were able to say, well, what, how frequent are certain names in Palestine compared to Jewish people outside of Palestine? And they took the gospel, the book of Acts, um, and they granted that they were probably written by people outside of Palestine. But the frequency of names used in the Gospels reflects the usage of names in Palestine. And I have a chart here which you can which you can look at. Um, the most popular name was Simon or Simeon. And uh, they found that it was used by 243 people in the literature they looked at. And it's interesting that in the New Testament, it was the most common name as well. It was the most common name in the study made uh, by German scholars in Palestine. And in the New Testament, in the Gospels, it is the most common name, eight times. 
If we look at Josephus, now Josephus was a Jewish writer um, who wrote a history of the Jewish people for the Roman Emperor Titus. Um, he had been the general of the Jewish forces which opposed Roman forces during the revolt in 68 to 19 to 70 uh, BC. And Josephus wrote a great book, a, a great, a, a large book, what I mean. And um, you will see that the most common name in his book, and he was a Jew, was um, living in Palestine a few years after the death of Jesus. Um, the most common name he used was Simon. And the ossuaries, those are boxes full of bones um, with notes in them. And you can see that there again, the most common name was Simon. And the Qumran, that's the Dead Sea Scrolls, the most common name almost is, is Simon. Uh, in that case, Joseph is more common, the second most common name. And you can go down that list and you will see that if you look at the New Testament, the uses of names in the New Testament follows very, very closely in the number of occurrences with other literature in Palestine at that time. Josephus, the ossuaries, those boxes of bones, and the, the uh, Dead Sea Schools, scrolls. And, and so I think it's very, very clear here that the frequency, the use of names in the New Testament, and particularly the Gospels, follows very closely the literature which existed at the time of, of Jesus in secular sources. That's an indication that the people who wrote the Gospels had a good idea about what names were being used in Palestine at that time. And that probably would not be true if the liberal scholars, those who question the Bible, uh, are right when they say that the Gospels were written 200 years later by people who never lived in that country. Because over 200 years, the usage of names would have changed a great deal. Um, Here's another chart. The two names used most often in the Gospel Acts are Simon and Joseph. Um, in Palestine, there was 15.6% of literature, uh, ossuaries, Dead Sea Scrolls, Josephus, and others. Uh, in the Gospel Acts, 18%. That's pretty close correlation. Uh, the nine most common names, 41.5% in Palestine, 40% in the Gospel Acts. Women with the most popular names, Mary and Salome, 28% uh, versus 38 I think that the literature, there's fewer women in the literature than men. And this, um, the fact that when you have a smaller sample, things don't work out quite as well is understandable. And women with one of the most time, nine most popular names, 49%, nearly 50% versus 61%. So we see a correlation there. It appears that um, the names, once again, used in Palestine um, are very close to the frequency of the names used in the Gospel and the Book of Acts. Um, if you look uh, once again, um, the first in Palestine, the most common name is Simon, used eight times in the New Testament. Joseph, Joseph is the second uh, most common in secular literature. It's found six times in the New Testament. Um, Lazarus is third, one time. Judas is fourth, five times. John, Yannan is fifth five times, Jesus, Jeshua, two times, that's the sixth. But you see, once again, there's a, there's a very serious, no matter how you look at this, very, very serious correlation there. Um, now, it's interesting, um, one of the biggest Jewish populations was in Alexandria, in Egypt. And we have a lot of literature from there. So we can compare Jewish names among the Jewish population in Egypt versus the Jewish population in Palestine. And in Egypt, the most 
common name was Eleazar, but in Palestine, that was the third most common name. In Egypt, Sabatius was the second most common name. It's the 68th most common name in Palestine. Joseph seems to be third, second, there's some correlation there. Uh, Dositheus was the fourth at 16th in Palestine. Papus was fifth in Egypt, 39th in Palestine. Uh, Plotimaeus was sixth in Egypt, 15th in Palestine. So you see that if you look at Jewish names in Egypt, among a very strong Jewish population, and compare that with names in Palestine, there's no correlation or very little correlation. So once again, here is evidence that those who wrote the New Testament were very much aware of the culture of the naming customs in that country. Um, it's interesting too that um, <clears throat> people didn't have second names back those back in those days. Uh, there are quite a few Douglases in Canada. There's only two Douglases, Doug Burgess, there's only two of them. Uh, and the other Doug Burgeon, his name doesn't have a T on the end, so he's not as good as I am. Um, um, so you can do Douglas, Douglas, but if you say Douglas Virgin, I'm the only one. Okay, um, and they used they didn't use um, last names back then, but they did do differentiation. And if you look at Matthew 10:24, where Matthew gives us the, the names of the twelve disciples, we we see we call we see that Simon, which was the most common name, but he doesn't just say Simon; he says Simon called Peter. And Andrew, which is a fairly common name, his brother. And James, which is the 11th most common name, he makes sure we know who that is. He says the sons of Zebedee. And John, which is the fifth most common name, his brother. Philip, which is the 61st common name, they don't differentiate for him because there weren't that many Philips. And Bartholomew, there were not very many. He doesn't give a differentiation, uh, a description of who he was. Thomas either, neither. But Matthew, the ninth most common name, ninth most common name, explains that he was Matthew the tax collector. James is the son of Alphaeus. We know that there are many James in the, in the New Testament. Thaddeus, not a common name, no differentiation. Simon, the most common name. Uh, the first one was Simon Peter, the second one is Simon the Zealot, uh, a Jewish sect who wanted to destroy the Romans uh, by revolt, by civil, civil war. And Judas Iscariot, Judas was a common name, fourth most common name, uh, described which Judas it was. So you see that the writers of the New Testament not only knew the names that were being used, but knew how we differentiated between different people. That's a pretty good, strong evidence that they were very, very aware of that culture. They almost had to have been there, I would say. A second test we can use is the test of geography. Um, now, I, I live in Three Rivers, and um, uh, I visit Christians in different churches. I haven't done it for a year and a half or so, but anyway, I, I'm looking forward to doing more pastoral visitation than I used to, um, than I have been for the last year and a half. But there are several villages around here, and I suspect that most of you have some idea where Trois-Rivières is. Um, we're halfway between Quebec City and Montreal um, on Highway 40 on the north side of the St. Lawrence River. David, who will be speaking in a little while, lives on the south shore of the St. Lawrence River, not too far from where I live. Um, but if I asked you where St. Francis Laos is, would you know where that is? It's a beautiful village. You need to visit it. And we have St. Barnabé and St. Boniface, and we have St. Narcisse and St. Maurice, and all these little villages where there are Christians, 
uh, which I visit. Now, if I were to write a, a diary up of all the people I visited, I would talk about those little towns. And uh, I don't think that any of you would write a book in which you would describe those towns, the churches in them. They all have big churches and a post office and 800 people or 500 people or something, a typical little French Canadian town, a beautiful, sounded by beautiful farmland. So I know something about the geography of the area Three Rivers. Um, probably most of you don't. And so if you look in the in the book in the Gospels <clears throat> and you try to figure out these people who wrote the Gospels, do they know anything about the geography of Palestine? If they were writing 200 years later and they had never visited Palestine or living thousands or hundreds of miles away, they probably wouldn't know the geography very well. Well, what are the cities mentioned in the Gospels and Acts? Um, Jerusalem occurs 66 times. That shouldn't surprise us. Nazareth appears 21 times. As far as I know, Nazareth is not mentioned in any secular literature. And I have a pretty good electronic library, and I haven't found it. Uh, Capernaum mentioned 16 times. Um, once again, not a town that is well known outside of the Bible. And then there are times by cities like uh, occur between five and 12 times, Bethany, Bethlehem, Bethsaida, Jericho, Sidon, Tyre, uh, or Tyre, I'm sorry. Um, and then we have cities that occur, or villages that occur one to four times, uh, Anion, Arimathea, Bethpage, Caesarea, Philippi, Cana, Chorazan, uh, and so on and so forth. And so um, a lot of cities are mentioned, and some of them are not very well known. Um, some of those villages, we don't know where they are today. I visited Palestine and we, we have um, uh, uh, people that show us around and uh, they'll probably tell us things we want to hear. And they'll say, we think that Capernaum was here. Uh, we think that uh, uh, Nain was here. They're not always sure. Um, if we compare that with extra biblical literature, and let me uh, an introduction say this, that um, we have the four Gospels in the Bible, which we believe were written. Um, perhaps John, the Gospel of John was written 90 AD, 60 years after the death of our Lord. The other Gospels were probably written before 60 AD, 30 years after the Gospel of, the Lord, of our Lord, uh, the, before the life of our Lord. Those four Gospels each have 12 to four cities in each of the Gospels, and they talk about 23 di different locations. There are a number of other Gospels written. Those ones we know are written 200 years or so after the death of Jesus. There's the Gospel of Philip, the Gospels of Peter, uh, the dialogue over the Savior. There's the Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Thomas is the one that set off the, um, the Da Vinci Code, uh, uh, great, great theories which have all disappeared, of course, like all these theories. Um, and you'll see that the Gospel of Philip only mentions two, two cities. It mentions Jerusalem, and it mentions Nazareth, but the person who wrote the Gospel of Philip was, tell, was so ignorant about the geography of Palestine that he thought that Nazareth was Jesus' second name. So when he read Jesus of Nazareth, he thought that Nazareth was Jesus' second name. The Gospel of Peter and the dialogue of, of our Lord mentioned only Jerusalem, and the other Gospels from the second and third century mention no other, uh, no other geographical names. If we look at the ignorance of place names in the Gospels, and I, I saw this graphic from, uh, from Peter Williams, uh, you'll see that um, 
the number of times place names are mentioned in those gospels. Uh, Mark has fewer place names. Mark only has 16 chapters, verses 28 for Matthew and 21 for John and 24 for Luke. Um, and you'll see the other, the second and third century gospels, gospel of Mary, almost none, Peter, almost none, Judas, almost none, uh, Philip a little bit more. And so there aren't that many occurrences of city names in those farther and those later gospels. That's explained by the, by the fact that they never visited that area. There have been two de deportations of the Jewish populations from those areas before those gospels were written. Um, and uh, it's understandable that they didn't know much of the geography. Another chart here that shows the place names for 1,000 words. Interesting how close Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come here. Um, the frequency of place names for 1,000 words um, is very, very close to those gospels. Um, Peter Williams asked the following questions. He, he says, um, I bet you that, that John, no, that Luke, called up Mark on the telephone and said, Mark, how often do you, did you put a geographical reference in your gospel per thousand words? And Mark said, I don't know, I'll count that up. That's pretty hard to do because you know those original Greek manuscripts have no space between the words. And uh, I tried to read them and I'm telling you it's not always easy. Um, uh, but Mark counted that up and told Luke, and so Luke counted up his words and said, oh, I'm short, and he put some more ge geographical names in there. And then John and Matthew heard about that, and they, they did the same thing. Is that, is that something you would believe? That makes sense. Um, I believe the Gospels were written by individuals. A lot of people think they depended on each other, on each other. I'm not convinced of that. But you see, the place names for thousand words varies a great deal between the later gospels, which are apocryphal, which are not inspired, and the gospels in our Bible. We can have a test of botany. Um, you, you know the story of Zacchaeus. <clears throat> we had a song I, we sang in Sunday school when I was a kid. Uh, I'll spare you my non-musical voice, but we used to go like this way. Um, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he, he climbed up in the, what tree? What tree did he climb up in? The sycamore tree. Sycamore. The he wanted to see. He climbed up in the sycamore tree. And where was he? Where did the story of Zacchaeus take place? Well, the Bible tells us it took place in the city of Jericho. Now, you know that I'm a trained as an accountant and I used to do some auditing. And when you're an auditor, you don't believe anything. Um, when I took my auditing, my auditing courses at university, they told us that everybody was a liar. You don't believe anything. The most honest people tell lies. You, you go into a set of books, into bookkeeping, and you assume that people have cheated, hidden money, stolen money, and uh, uh, you don't believe anything. So I approach this story and I say, yeah, but were there sycamore trees in Jericho? Were there? So um, let's look into it. Here's a map of the distribution of Ficus sycamorus, which is the Latin name for that particular tree. Very, very interesting. It's native to uh, parts of Saudi Arabia and to lots of parts of Africa and parts of Egypt and Palestine. It's not native to Rome or to Syria or to Turkey, where the Bible or the Gospels were written. 
Is it possible that the person who wrote the gospel that tells us that Zacchaeus climbed up in a sycamore tree so we could see Jesus had been in Jericho and he knew the sycamore trees grew there? Is it likely that someone that spent their life in Rome 200 years after these events take, took place and you remember that the Romans cut down all the trees in Palestine to crucify people on when after that revolt. Um, I think that the mention of a tree, which is common only in that area in the Middle East, is uh, indicative of somebody who wrote that gospel knew a lot about that area. And if you we won't take time this morning, um, um, but we could go through a lot of the um, the crops and the plants and vegetation that I mentioned the gospel and look at um, whether they still grow there or not. And it's very, very interesting. Um, whoever wrote those gospels knew what was being grown in those countries at that time. Now let's apply these three texts. What time is it? I think I'm going to finish early, David. I hope you have a lot of material. Uh, let's apply these three tests. Um, there are lots of uh, stories of miracles in the Gospels. Um, there's only one miracle which we find in all four Gospels, and that's the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. Um, if the Holy Spirit decided to put that miracle in the four Gospels, it's because it's very, very important. So I'd like to look at it with you. First of all, it says there were 5,000 men. Now I'm gonna get, not gonna get, not getting to get into the question of whether there were 5,000 people, only 5,000 men and 20,000 uh, people in all because there were families with a mom, mom and dad and two kids. I'm not sure about that. Uh, we will get into that this morning. We don't need to do that. But let's look at, um, what's said in those four Gospels. The four Gospels do not contradict each other, but they complement each other. In Mark 6, 39 to 40, we read, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So he sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. Luke tells us there were about 5,000 men, and he said to the disciples, have them sit down in groups of 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. Now, if you hear the news, you'll read different and hear different reports about how many people are at riots and demonstrations. Uh, recently, um, I don't want to get into American politics, but there's a big crowd for a Trump rally, and the Republicans said there were 35,000 people, the Democrats said there were 3,000 people, and who knows how many people there were. And so we can ask the question, these disciples, could they count 5,000 people? If I were there looking at a crowd, I have trouble standing up and looking at a church and whether there's 100 people or 200 people. I'm not very good at that. Uh, probably because I'm short-sighted and I don't wear glasses because I don't like them. But um, did they know that? Well, we're told that they, they, they sat down in groups of hundreds or fifties. And I'll just assume that there were groups of a hundred. So if there are 5,000 people um, and they set them down, put them in groups of, of 50, um, that would be 100 groups. And that would be each, each disciple is responsible for eight groups. Now, do you suppose that Matthew, the um, publican, the tax collector, could count? Suppose he could count 50 people? Uh, do you suppose he could uh, uh, count eight groups of 50 people? I suspect he could. 
I had an interesting experience recently. My daughter called me and said, uh, your grandson, Jake, who's 15 in high school, is having trouble with, he's having trouble with math, having trouble with algebra. Come and help him. You're the accountant. So I drove over and put my mask on and uh, uh, sat down distance from him and sat down with his math, his algebra. And he was having trouble. It was one of these horrible exercises where you have x to the fourth plus uh, six y to the 10th power minus three um, z to the sixth power multiplied by uh, x to the third power minus z to the second power, you know, and then all that type of thing. You know, that stuff we used to love in algebra, algebra when we were all kids. I sat down with him. I tried to explain to him that when you multiply powers, x squared multiplied by x to the third power gives x to the fifth power because we add the powers. And he said, I know that. That's our problem to me. So I went with him trying to figure out what his problem was. And his problem was that he didn't know that 3 times y makes 15. He knew that x third by x fifth makes x eight, but he didn't know 5 by 3 times makes 15. My son's children are homeschooled, and they know their times tables when they're 10 years old up to 15 by 15. He doesn't know that 4 times 4 makes 16. You know, I said, Jake, we're going to spend a couple of evenings, and you're going to memorize your timetables. My daughter got a call from this math teacher recently saying, over the last two weeks, Jake is passing his math. He's doing so well. My wife said, he's finally learned his timetables. You guys should have taught him that in grade school. Anyway, um, back in those days, people knew how to count, I think, and fishermen knew how to count how many fish they had. And so I think it's reasonable to say that um, um, I, I think that uh, the Lord made him count by hundreds and fifties. He must have had some things that counted or something. I don't know. Um, and it's reasonable to say that they could have estimated how many people, how many people there were. It, it just makes sense. We read in Mark 39 that there was green grass. Mark 6 says that there was much grass. You realize that um, my grass is starting to turn green. And this afternoon, I'm going to go, going to go get some show um, lime. I'm going to get some lime because our soil is quite acid here. I'm going to get some fertilizer and put that on. And my grass will be green, but by the middle of August, it'll be gray. It'll be um, yellow. And in Palestine, the seasons change a lot, and green grass becomes um, yellow uh, during certain times of the year. Let's retain that, that there was green grass, uh, much green grass. In Mark 6, they tell us that many were coming and going. This is all in the story in the four Gospels about the feeding of the 5,000 men. John 6, gives us, John 6 gives us information that's interesting. It says, now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. John 6 says that Jesus asked Philip where to buy bread. Why did he ask Philip and not Matthew or John or Peter? And John 6, uh, next in the verses afterwards, it says that both Philip and Andrew answered that question about where to buy bread. Luke 9 gives us an additional detail. The meal, meal took place at Bethsaida. In John 1.44, we read that Philip and Andrew were from Bethsaida. Oh. In John 6, 9, we read that there were five barley loaves of bread. The Passover feast is sometime about the month of April. I have a chart here of precipitation near Tiberias, north of Galilee, in millimeters um, by month. And so if this yellow arrow 
and you know, I think you're aware that the Passover varies according to the moon, uh, the, the phases of the moon. It's not quite the same time as Easter, about that time. And you'll see that at some time, uh, end of April, beginning of May, something like that. <clears throat> Look at the precipitation beforehand. February, January, December. <laughs> Do you think the grass was green? Sure it was. Now, if that had taken place in August or September, the grass would have been green. So this story holds together. Jesus asked Philip where to buy bread. Philip and, answer, Philip and Andrew answered, but they lived in Bethsaida, and that's where this took place. So Jesus asked the two people who lived close to there where to buy bread. It, it fits. It makes sense. Mark 6.31, the second line there tells us that many were coming and going. What well, was the Passover? And during the Passover, every male Jew who had the help to do it was supposed to go to Jerusalem for the Passover. And of course, people were coming and going. And then the last line tells us there were five barley loaves of bread. And barley is the first harvest of grain in Jerusalem. It was harvested sometime in April and, and May. So it's absolutely sensible that if there was bread available, it would have been made by barley. But made out of barley. So, so do you see the four gospels give different details, they fit together and they make sense. And I'm not sure that the seasons are the same in Rome and Ephesus. Um, I don't think those people knew geography that well, didn't know that barley was harvested first. Didn't realize there was more grass in April than there was in August. Did you see what I'm saying? This all makes sense. <clears throat> I want to draw some conclusions here. Um, <clears throat> I told you that <clears throat> I was a trained as an accountant. Most of my work was done in cost accounting and in um, um, quality control in, in my professional career. Um, I've used a lot of statistics this morning. You'll have to excuse me. Um, I use a lot of statistics in quality control and in cost accounting. Um, so I, I, I had the skeptical um, mindset. And I know it's to say something is proved is difficult. If you read the accountant's opinion at the beginning of audited financial statements, they'll say something like, nothing leads us to believe that these statements do not reflect reality. You won't have chartered accountants say this, these statements are exactly what is there. Uh, they don't want to say that. They don't, they don't want to be risk. They, do, they don't want to risk being sued. And if it's a nonprofit corporation that receives a lot of gifts, they're even more hesitant to give their opinion because who can say if all the gifts have been included in the books or somewhere stolen? And so I'm going to approach this from an accountant's point of view, and I'm going to say that the evidence that we have this morning supports the idea doesn't prove it, but supports the idea that the Gospels were written by people who lived in Palestine at the time Jesus was alive or who knew well people who had lived there. Yeah, I, th I think that we've shown good evidence for that. And we've shown that the, the authors knew the geography, names people use, their names, the coinage, they talk about what type of coins they had, they talk about the denarius and, and the temple um, uh, the temple um, coin that they used to pay their temple tax, which, by the way, didn't exist after 70 AD because they burned the temple down. 
that talk about agriculture, plants, trees, weather patterns, talk about the culture. They, they seem to know that well, too well to have been written by a person who lived far away two centuries later. Uh, I think that we have shown good evidence that it's very improbable that the Gospels could have been written 100 or 200 more years after the events by people who had not experienced them first time, or people like Luke who had lived with uh, the disciples and had, who are secondhand. And I'd much rather believe secondhand evidence than 16th hand evidence, like Mark Ehrman said. Well, that uh, finishes what I have to say. Um, once again, I want to um, say that I've gathered this material over the years from different sources. Very um, grateful to Peter Williams for his work. And um, uh, I hope this helps you to understand that the arguments of the Gospels uh, were written hundreds of years after the events probably are improbable. And it's very probable that the Gospels were written by people who were witnesses of those events and who knew the culture well. We're going to take a break of 10 minutes so you can get a coffee or whatever you want to get. And David's going to take over and talk to us about the existence of God in about 10 minutes. Thank you very much for your attention. Larry, if you're not still there, now's a good time to come back. Um, so uh, Doug's already given an introduction for who I am. I don't know that I need to add anything to that. For anyone who may have jumped in after the case, uh, just uh, a quick word of warning. <laughs> my my uh, my most of my academic work has been in philosophy, and I have a PhD in philosophy from University of Laval, uh, and I teach uh, philosophy and theology at numerous different schools. I've just been brought on at Minneapolis uh, Bethlehem College and Seminary uh, to teach there as well. So in this session, we're going to be looking at the question, uh, does God exist? All right, I'll share my screen here. All right, let me see. There we go. Hopefully everybody can see that now. All right. So, uh, does God exist? This is a question uh, that, um, how would I put this? Can, it, 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 it seems obvious to everyone who's Christians, and the answer is yes, and seems obvious to anyone who's not a Christian, the answer is no. And typically, th th there can be some sort of um, uh, pushback, on, especially in, in Christian circles, especially in Protestantism, and even especially in Quebec. There's a certain amount of pushback against the, the, the desire to want to prove that God exists. And uh, over the past uh, number of years, I've, I've, been, I've spent a great deal of time uh, working on arguments for the existence of God uh, in Quebec and have run into uh, a lot of uh, people kind of pushing back on that and saying, no, we don't need to prove that God exists, or even you can't prove that God exists. So before we get into it, uh, here's what I want to look at today. I want to look at some preliminary thoughts uh, about proving the existence of God. We're going to look at uh, the conclusion, no, you cannot prove that God exists. Or in fact, the, the opposite answer to the question, no, God does not exist. Uh, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time in this, in this session looking at a, uh, I note here, a non-comprehensive list of arguments that prove that God exists. So preliminary thoughts. Uh, first of all, when we're talking about demonstrating the existence of God or demonstrating the existence of anything, we have to talk about different types of demonstration. 
So uh, I'm not going to get into all of the uh, precise um, terms for, uh, that we use. However, we, there are two types of de demonstrations that are interesting or important when it comes to demonstrating that God exists. We can talk about demonstrations that move from cause to effect. So we know the cause, we know, we know that something is the case, and because this is the case, this effect will flow from it. Um, and actually, as I'm saying that, I, the thought crosses my mind. Uh, I will happily take questions at the end of the session. So if ever I say anything and you're kind of like, whoa, I don't understand what happened there, please write that question down. And when I finish this presentation, I'll, I will uh, do my best to respond to any questions you may have. So now this first type of uh, demonstration, it's from cause to effect. Uh, we, we know that, we, we know what something is, and therefore we're able to deduce what types of effects can come from it. So we know that uh, humans are rational animals, therefore we know that they're able to do rational actions. We expect, in fact, that they will act rationally. Uh, another type of demonstration is moving from effect to cause. And we do this all the time. Uh, this is something that we do so, uh, so frequently, we often don't even think about the fact that we are doing this type of demonstration. We observe an effect, something that happens, and then from that effect, we infer the existence of a cause. Uh, just, just to give a couple ideas that will help, uh, help illustrate this type of demonstration. Uh, think about you're driving down the, down the road in your car, and all of a sudden you have a flat tire. So the flat tire is the effect. Now, immediately, you're going to infer, and you probably, you may not even think about this as an inference, but, okay, I have a flat tire. Therefore, something pierced the tire, okay? You, you may not know what it was that pierced the tire. It might be a, a nail. It might be a, a branch line in the road. In fact, uh, my, my cousin had that happen to her recently, where she was driving down the road and ran over a branch in the street and, and got a flat tire, right? So you may not know what it was that caused the flat tire, but you do know that something pierced the, the tire, thus causing the air to leave it. That would be an example of a demonstration moving from effect to cause. Another example, uh, you, you arrive at home, you expect the door to be open because you know, your, your, your family is there. And so you open, you turn the handle to walk in, but the door does not move, it doesn't budge. Well, your immediate inference is going to be something along the lines of, hey, um, Someone uh, must have locked the door. Let's say you then uh, take the key and you put it in and you unlock the door and then you go to walk in, but the door still does not move. Well, wait a second. Uh, okay, something, something must be blocking the door. We're moving from effect to cause. What is the effect? The door doesn't budge. And then you make an inference moving from the door's not budging to something is causing that door to remain immobile, even though I put my weight on it to try and move it open, right? So that's another example. Uh, and, and we can just, we can honestly just keep going and giving examples of, of, of demonstrations moving from effect to cause that we do every day. So that's the first thing we need to talk about when, we, when we're talking about demonstrating the existence of God. In general, in Christian theology, and, I, and this goes back, by the way, not, not just Christian theology, this goes back all the way to Plato, and even to some of the pre-Socratics, when we are talking about demonstrations for the existence of God, we are talking about this second type of demonstration, moving from effect to cause. We observe something, 
and we infer from what we are observing that there must be a adequate cause for that thing that we are observing, that phenomenon. So we're, we're talking about the second part of de this demonstration, not the first type of demonstration. In order to do the first type of demonstration where it's from, from the existence or nature of something to its effect, or from the cause to the effect, you would actually have to know already the nature of the thing in question. So for example, if I already know that a, that a um, omnipotent, uh, omnipresent being exists that created this universe, then I might infer, for example, that miracles can happen. That would be, you know, cause to effect. I, I can infer the, the the possibility of miracles from uh, the the existence of the, the this omnipresent, uh, uh, omnipower, omni uh, powerful cause. Uh, it, it, that would it, that would make it um, rational. The thing is, is with that type of uh, inference, you cannot say therefore it must happen. So I can infer the possibility of the miracle, not the necessity of the miracle. The demonstration from effect to cause is a necessary demonstration. If there is an effect, there must be a cause. We may not know 100% what that cause is. We may not know 100% uh, how to describe that cause, but if the door is not moving, something is keeping it shut. If my tire blew while I was driving, something pierced it, right? So, so we're able to infer the, the cause. That's the type of demonstration we're looking at when we talk about demonstrating that God exists. Now, another thing we need to talk about here, uh, still within demonstrations, here moving a little bit to reasons to believe. Uh, if you talked with, uh, for myself, for example, myself, and you compared my uh, approach to this question with my good friend and colleague, uh, Guillaume Bignon, uh, who is a, a philosopher and theologian, lives down in, in the States. He, does, he comes occasionally to Quebec uh, to, to do apologetics. He used to prior to COVID. Um, and perhaps even just some other uh, friends of mine who work in, in this area, so, some philosophers are going to say, we can provide reasons to believe that God exists, but we cannot demonstrate that he exists, okay? And, and there's a distinction between this. When we talk about a reason to believe, uh, uh, Doug gave you a number of solid reasons to believe in the previous uh, session, he gave you a number of solid reasons to believe that the Gospels were written in the first century. Okay. And, and, and note the wording that he gave in the conclusion. We can't prove it without a doubt. It's not, it's not something that is irrefutable, but everything points towards that conclusion. And so it is reasonable to believe that the Gospels were written in the first century. If I talk about a demonstration, the conclusion necessarily follows from the premises, almost like a mathematical equation. Two plus two, first premise being two, second premise being two, the, the adding them together equals four. Okay, the conclusion four necessarily follows from the premises. Two plus two equals four. So that, that's an example of a demonstration versus a reason to believe. Reasons to believe give you Things give, give, provide you with phenomenon that might make it more rational to accept the existence of something, but they don't demonstrate that this thing therefore is true. And an example, the, the, an example that you might, I might give you of um, what is sometimes presented as the perfect uh, syllogism is something along the following lines. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. 
Now, the conclusion which necessarily follows from those two premises, all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, the conclusion which necessarily follows is, therefore, Socrates is mortal. This is a necessary conclusion based upon the first two premises. That's why we sometimes present that as a, as a, as a perfect syllogism or a perfect example of a demonstration. Note, this is the first type of demonstration where we know something about the nature of man. We know that man is, by nature, prone to die. They do not, men, men uh, eventually the bodies and the soul are separated. So that, we have that type of demonstration. Finally, what I, what, and, and just to finish with this thought here, what I'll be presenting to you today are uh, essentially uh, arguments which, if it turns out the premises do not follow from the conclusions, then not only do they not provide reasons to believe that God exists, they fail as demonstrations. They do not, in fact, demonstrate that God exists. Now, uh, in, the, in the modern period of philosophy, right near the end of the modern period, get coming close towards the, what we call the contemporary period, which begins with the 1800s, uh, Immanuel Kant uh, provided a number of what he thought were refutations of the arguments of the existence of God. And many scholars working in theology just accepted the, these, these, these refutations and basically said, okay, so we can no longer prove that God exists. We must therefore believe that God exists. This is where it comes to the question of faith. Okay. Now, the classical uh, Christian definition of faith is voluntary assent to the truth of some proposition. So i uh, give you some quick examples. Uh, Arist this is, we find this within, in Augustine, uh, in, where he, he, he defines faith this way. We find it also in C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis defines it the same way. And, and, and most people between Augustine and C.S. Lewis would define this the same way. In fact, even the, even the reformers, I've been reading Philippe, Philippe Melanchthon recently, and he describes faith in a very similar way. Um, so, uh, faith is to willingly assent or accept the truth of some proposition, and we accept it based upon the authority of somebody. So we recognize that this person is authoritative, that what they say is probably true. Now, we do not have access to what they're saying to be able to verify the truth of what they're saying, so we just accept their word. Okay, that's what faith essentially is. Now, we use this all the time, as both Augustine, in fact, Augustine Aquinas, uh, C.S. Lewis, they all said the same thing. 99, perhaps 95, it's in the high 90s percentage of everything we think we know, we probably believe it, it's faith-based. So uh, give, give, give a couple examples. If I, was in a, if I was in a room with you all, uh, like we could be if it was not for the COVID situation, uh, I would ask you everybody to raise your hands. Okay, how many people here know that Australia exists? Okay. And, and, and most people would raise their hands because, well, we're all educated. We've all, well, most people, you know, have a primary or secondary education. We know something of geography and Australia clearly exists, right? Wait a second. Question, how do we know that? Has anyone, in the next question I would ask is by a show of hands, how many people in this room have actually been to Australia? Or flown over it? Or flown close enough to it to be able to see it from the plane window? And if, when I ask that question, uh, almost inevitably all of the hands go down. Well, okay, well then how do you know that Australia exists? And again, the, the, the inevitable answer is typically, um, well, I mean, our professor told us in school, we saw it in the geography maps. 
we see, we see it like I have a globe at home. And if I turn around and look at the bottom, see there's Australia. It's clear. Okay, wait a second. Uh, those maps, that globe, and your professor are all authorities which have told you that something is the case. And your so-called knowledge of the existence of Australia, if it is based upon maps, a globe, or your professor, is fake. You are assenting to the truth of a proposition based upon the word of a person which you take as authoritative, but you actually have no firsthand knowledge of that. So you have faith. Well, the question then becomes, can we prove that God exists? Can we demonstrate that God exists in the ways that I've explained already? Or is this simply a question of faith? We take it upon the word of someone else. Well, uh, I would submit, first of all, that for most people, it is simply a question of faith. Uh, my, my children, um, my, my oldest daughter is now currently uh, taking a course in logic. Um, and for most people, logic, even though we tend to think rationally, actually studying logic can be quite difficult. It's kind of like studying algebra. It's, it's not for everybody. And it's not necessarily easy. And so even when you studied logic, uh, it's, it's not necessarily easy to understand uh, an argument put in logical form. So most people, even those who have studied logic, may not be able to actually understand and grasp the coherence of a, uh, um, of, a, of a rigorously presented logical argument for the existence of God. So, and for most people, my children, uh, I'll take as a prime example, uh, they believe that God exists based upon the word of their parents uh, and, and, and based upon what they see in the word of God. This is belief. However, uh, for some people, demonstrating that God exists will be, we can talk about this as knowledge in the same way that we can talk about a demonstration from effect to cause being based upon knowledge. So when my tire blows, I know that something pierced it. I may believe that it was a branch or I may believe that it was a nail or some other thing. I may, have, I may not know what it was, but I do know that something pierced my tire based upon inference. I can then go and verify that. So same thing with Australia. I may believe based upon the authority of a friend who lived in Australia. In fact, one of my students uh, uh, lived, lives in Australia. I may believe that Australia exists based upon the word of that person who, <laughs> um, in theory, they've been there. But unless I put foot, I, but I can verify that. I can go to Australia and put my foot on the ground and realize, okay, so this, this is a real place. So if I don't, prior to verifying it, I have belief. Once I have verified it, I have knowledge. Uh, a demonstration provides as much knowledge as physically going and verifying. So uh, that's the first point. Can the statement God exists be demonstrated? Well, I'm actually kind of getting into this here while I talk about, I can go and verify that Australia exists by actually putting my foot there. I can verify the existence or the truth of certain propositions based upon uh, logical deductions. And this is something that we, again, kind of, I mean, I would put this way, we, we live this way. Our lives are often based upon logical inferences from effect to cause, but we never really think about the fact that, yeah, these, this is true. Um, so, so for example, uh, coming back to the door idea, I come home and I go to open the door and I realize that the, that the door is not moving. Oh, it, it's locked. 
Okay. This is a logical inference, and I have knowledge of that. I then go and unlock the door. Now, perhaps I'm wrong. It, it, when, I, when I go to unlock the door and realize the door is already unlocked, I'm verifying my inference. Note one thing, though. I do know the door is locked, even if I'm not 100% certain, or I should say, I do know that the, the door is immobile, even though I may not know 100% certitude why it is immobile. Is someone hiding behind it, holding it shut? Is it because it's locked? Did someone take a, a nail gun and put nails in the door to make sure it doesn't move or screw it shut? I don't, I don't know that. I do know simply that it is immobile. Can the statement God exists be demonstrated? Well, the question here we need to ask, first of all, is what are we looking for when we talk about a demonstration of the existence of God? If I'm looking for a demonstration of the existence of the triune God of the Bible, uh, almost all of Christian theologians, and I say almost all Christian theologians, are unanimous to say that it, you cannot demonstrate the existence of the triune God of the Bible, because God reveals himself as triune in the scriptures alone. Therefore, that cannot be demonstrated. It must be accepted on faith. However, throughout the history of Christian theology, again, almost all Christian theologians would also agree that we can demonstrate something. That is, that the universe was created by an entity which exists or outside of the universe. Uh, and for, if you're familiar with Thomas Aquinas's five ways the, the Summa, in the Summa Theologia, you, you will see that at the end of each demonstration, he makes the statement, after having demonstrated something of uh, something, he says, this is what all people take to be God. Okay, and then if you, and if you put the five ways together, you do have a fairly robust view of God. At this point, uh, what he has, what, what is being proved is that there is a transcendent, immovable, or immutable, eternal being, which is the cause of the sensible universe. And this is what Aquinas would say, for example, this is what all people take to be God. Now, if, if that's what we are looking to prove, uh, then I would submit that historically speaking, at least, from Plato all the way up to Kant, most Christian theologians have been in agreement, uh, and even many philosophers have been in agreement to say that we can demonstrate that God exists. This brings me to the, the third point here. Can a perfect demonstration convince? Okay. Uh, this is a question that I, I wanted to throw in here because it's one of the, it's one of the uh, kind of, one of, it's one of the questions that I often get when I'm talking about the existence of God. Uh, if you're someone might say, well, hey, I've presented arguments for the existence of God, which I found convincing. I've presented them to my friends who are atheists, and they weren't convinced. Therefore, demonstrations of the existence of God don't work. That idea, which I just explained there, is simply false. Um, in fact, uh, psychologically speaking, if an event is traumatizing enough, you may see it with your own eyes and yet invent, in a, uh, invent a, and even remember things differently than how they actually happened. And we see this happening with people who, who live through traumatizing events where they know that something happened. This person died in a traumatizing way. But it, it so affected their psychology that even though they were eyewitnesses of the event, they remember it differently or they think of it as a different cause, or they simply don't remember it. Can a perfect demonstration convince? 
historically speaking, especially within the especially within the Reformed tradition, Christian theologians have said that though the demonstration may be a perfect syllogism, that meaning this, the conclusion follows from the premises, and the premises are true. Therefore, the conclusion is true. Because human beings repress knowledge of God, which according to Paul in Romans chapter 1 is evidence to them, though they may be presented with a perfect demonstration, they may yet refuse to accept the conclusion. Now, in philosophy, and, and this, is, this is true for theology as well, if I am unhappy with the conclusion of some argument, it is not enough to simply reject the conclusion. That would be essentially a, a dogmatic response. You say A, I say B. You say tomato, I say tomato. Um, on the contrary, in order to refute an argument, you have to re show either that the conclusion does not follow from the premises. So, for example, 2 plus 2 equals 5. No, the conclusion does not follow from the premises. There's a missing premise. You've got to have a 1 in there somewhere. Or there is an error in your premise. One of the premises, in order to get 5, you've got to have 2 plus 3 or 2 plus 2 plus 1 to get 5. So you're going to show in an argument either that there is a missing premise or that one of the premises is wrong. And in that way, you will show that the conclusion is false. So what happens is, is if someone does not like the conclusion, therefore God exists, a lot of times what they'll end up doing is trying to show, rather than just accept the argument, they will try to show that one of the premises is wrong or that there is a missing premises. And so this is why in philosophy there is debate on the question, uh, on the question of the arguments from God, for the existence of God. Because we do not like the conclusion, therefore we must reject it. the conclusion by showing one of the premises to either to be false or showing that the argument is lacking a premise. Uh, and this comes back to the question of conviction. Can I actually convince anyone of anything? Uh, and one last point on this, 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 this point here is that conviction has to do with the will. It actually doesn't have anything to do with the intellect. The intellect will receive the information, yes, but when we talk about conviction, we are talking about the will. That is, am I moved to accept the conclusion? And we can actually not, uh, if I'm going to use the word here, con constrain anyone to believe anything. Uh, and we know this is, this is just a historical fact for anyone who's, who's looked at the history of, of uh, tyrannical leaders. A tyrannical leader may require everyone in their society to believe a certain thing, but he actually cannot constrain them to believe that. He may want them all to believe that he has the divine right to rule, and they may say that publicly. They may publicly admit he has the divine right to rule, but he can actually not control what's going on in their mind. We cannot constrain anyone to believe anything, whether what we're trying to make them believe is true or false. So even a perfect demonstration cannot necessarily convince anyone. Okay. With those preliminary thoughts, and there's probably a lot more that I could say on these questions, uh, but I do want to get into some of these arguments of the essence of God. Let's turn to, God, to, the, first, to, the, to the, the, the first response to the question. Does God exist? Some people say, no, God does not exist. Now, Peter Kreeft, in his book on the art on the problem of evil, an earlier book that he wrote uh, a number of years ago, Peter Kreeft makes the following statement. He says something, I'm paraphrasing here. He says, 
there is one good argument against the existence of God. There are close to, if not more, than 15 good arguments to demonstrate the existence of God. One, that, to try and demonstrate that God does not exist. 15 or more to demonstrate that God does exist. That one good argument that he is referring to is the argument from evil. This is probably the classical and the, and the, the, the most uh, well-known argument against the existence of God. It goes all the way back to Greek, uh, Greek Greco-Roman thought. Okay, and it was given as popular. Uh, the way, and I say popular, I mean the way that it's known in general in society. It was given its popular form uh, by David Hume, and it has since then generated a great deal of of controversy. You might say where uh, some philosophers have demonstrated that this argument simply does not work, and others have tried to find ways to get around those refutations. I'm going to give you the popular version. Uh, I, I just with, with the with the uh, qualification and, or the nuance to, to remind you that uh, though this this is the popular version, but there are many variations of the argument from evil that exist, and all of them are are under discussion. And I would submit to you that. Um, all of them can be defeated. You just have to be reading the right material. Okay, so here's this is how the argument for evil goes. First of all, we're going to admit a number of truths about God. God is all powerful. Therefore, he can eliminate evil. Notice the words there. He can eliminate evil. He has the ability to eliminate all evil because he is all powerful. Secondly, God is omnibenevolent. He is all good. Uh, and, and this, is, again, is something that Christianity accepts and teaches. God is, in fact, I was discussing this with a friend this morning, God is good per se. Okay, he's not good in the sense that sometimes humans do good things, but that we are never really all that good. No, no, God is good per se. If you ask, what is goodness? Goodness is God. Okay, the very nature of goodness, that's God. Therefore, he desires or wants to eliminate all evil. So he can and he wants to. Well, God is also all-knowing. He knows everything. Well, if that's the case, then he knows how to eliminate evil. He can, he wants to, and he knows how. But wait a second. Evil exists. Conclusion? Therefore, either one of the first two, first three premises is either individually or taken altogether is false or simply, and this is usually where most people go with this, therefore God does not exist. Okay? Now, I, I, usually people just conclude after, after the fourth premise that therefore, they just say, well, therefore God does not exist. Uh, I'm pointing out here in, in, the, in, this, in number five here, where I say, therefore, either one, two, or three individually or taken together is false. Well, that's to point out that technically the conclusion God does not exist simply does not follow from premises one to four. And this has been known for a very long time. In fact, C.S. Lewis in his, in his book, The Problem of Pain, points out, he, sa he says right in the preface, he says, the philosophical problem of pain is relatively simple to solve. The problem of evil, the problem of pain which is difficult to solve is not the philosophical argument against God, it is the um, psychological or personal problem of pain, which is summarized in the question, why is this 
evil event happening to me. Okay? Uh, J.L. Mackey, uh, who is well known as one of the most prominent uh, atheist philosophers around, his works are, are basically authoritative on, on, uh, for, for the atheist perspective on the existence of God. Uh, in one of his articles, uh, if I remember correctly, it's called Mind and, Omnip uh, Mind and Omnipotence. Um, he says that this argument is invalid. And so he has to add some, he, he says that he thinks it's invalid because it's missing premises. So he attempts to add some premises in there in order to get this conclusion, this same conclusion, God, therefore God does not exist, or at least, therefore the God that does exist is not the God of Christianity. Okay? Why does he think that this argument is invalid? Well, okay, it's because of, it's because of the extra premises. I'm not going to add the extra premises in here. I don't want to spend too much more time on this. But even with the extra premises that J.L. Mackey adds in, in his article, he leaves premise four. And the Christian who is, uh, how do I put this, who is delving into their scriptures and reading their scriptures, the Christian who uh, recognizes Christian, Christian tradition and who is, for, and who is uh, reading, for example, Augustine and other, other Christian theologians of the same sort, will immediately recognize that this fourth premise, which, which hopefully you guys see as yellow, evil exists, is in fact false. Christian tradition, as far as far back as I, I would submit the scriptures themselves, describes evil not as something that is, but as in fact something that is not. Evil is the absence of good in the same way that cold is the absence of heat and darkness is the absence of light. It is not an existing thing, but a non-existing thing in the same way that a broken mirror is the absence of a mirror. Or, the, or if I'm missing a button on my shirt, there is no such thing as a so-called missing button. It's, it's a non-existing thing that should be there. Or the broken window in my car is not an existing thing. It's a non-existing thing. There is no window. The window's not there anymore. Okay, so the, the evil is in fact the absence of goodness and the absence of being. Therefore, the argument from evil falls apart. And interestingly enough, having explained that, J.L. Mackey, in the article I referred to earlier, actually recognizes that very point. J.L. Mackey, in a footnote to his, his, his argument, to his paper, he actually says that in the tradition of Christianity that which draws itself from Augustine, his argument, even with the ad premises, fails on that point, on the question of the existence of evil. Uh, and I would suggest, uh, historically speaking, that Christianity uh, since Augustine has, for both Catholics and both and Protestants, has drawn much of its theology from Augustine itself. And that uh, can historically be proven by looking at the Reformation and the early Reformation theologians. So, but, but for, for, the, for this point here, the argument, no, God does not exist based upon evil, does not work. It is philosophically unsound. Now let's look at the other side. The other answer is yes, God does exist. Now, I'm going to provide you a list 
of arguments, and then we're going to look at some of them uh, once I've finished looking at this list. Okay, I, I'm, I'm saying it's a non-comprehensive list because it is. Uh, Peter Kreeft talked about 15 different arguments for the existence of God. Um, in all honesty, when we look through the history of Western thought, starting with the pre-Socratics, ending with today, uh, if we include the variations on different types of arguments, there are well, there, there, there are many more than 15 different arguments demonstrating the existence of God, coming from at least three different traditions. Um, Christian, uh, Jewish, and uh, Islamic or Muslim traditions. So, uh, and, and oh, I, should, I should say the, the fourth tradition, Greek philosophy. Uh, one of the reasons why I enjoy reading Greek philosophy, I, I, I must admit, is that without access to divine revelation, they demonstrate, many of them demonstrate that God exists. And so I'm going to mention i'm going to mention here a number of arguments then we'll look at some of them so first of all the argument from the order of the universe we find this argument already i mentioned plato here in fact we find it with some pre-socratics prior to socrates so, so prior to 400 bc we have greek philosophers already looking at the universe and saying from whence this order and the only conclusion they can arrive at is there must be an orderer, something that put things in order. Because other, what, what they recognize on the other side of things is that disorder is natural. If things are left on their own without an intelligent being putting them in order, things tend towards disorder. And Plato is one of the first who really articulated this in a, in a a logical manner in his in his uh, well-known dialogue called the Timaeus and also in his gigantic book the laws Plato argues or presents the order of the universe as a demonstration for the existence of a creator after Plato this argument from the order of the universe basically became a, a stock argument for the existence of God we find it in Aristotle we find it in almost every single a Christian theologian all the way up to the end of the modern era, and it still is still around today. Next, the argument from movement. Uh, so, and here, when we talk about movement, we're not talking about. Um, I, I can't see myself on the screen, but I can see people on the screen, and I can see some of you moving. Okay, moving your head back and forth or a hand or something. We're not talking about local movement per se. Uh, here, the term movement is a, a term of art. Okay, it's a, it's a term that's being used to refer to all and any change. If there's change, if something moves from one state to another, then something caused it to move from one state to another. This argument begins with Aristotle. We find it in his physics, but we also find it in Maimonides. Maimonides was, an, was probably the most important Jewish philosopher. And he, he uh, aside perhaps from Philo, uh, some of you may have heard of Philo, who was a... a, a a Jewish philosopher in the first century. Maimonides was probably one of the most important Jewish philosophers living in the medieval period. And this argument for movement continues uh, throughout uh, history, starting with Aristotle, going through Maimonides, some of the Muslim philosophers, we find it in Aquinas as well. And we find it in many reformed theologians in some of their works. Argument from contingent being. Uh, a contingent being is something that is not but may become or is 
but may change. Anything that can, anything, uh, any being which can or change is a contingent being. We find this argument from contingent being in Aristotle, Avicenna, Aquinas, and so on in different uh, forms and, and types of, uh, and variations. The argument from beauty. This is one of my favorite arguments. Uh, the argument from beauty starts with Plato. We find its classical position, uh, its classical presentation with Cicero. Uh, and then we find it in basically every single Christian theologian uh, throughout uh, history. Uh, I could name names like uh, Gregory Nazianzus, Gregory of Nyssa, Jean Chrysostom, Augustine, uh, Aquinas, Calvin, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, the argument from the universal notion of deity or the sensus divinitatis. Now, if, if you've read John Calvin, if you know anything about Calvin, you have definitely heard of this term, the sensus divinitatis. And often we think of John Calvin as being the person who invented this idea of the sensus divinitatis or the one who kind of made, at least um, it, it started with him for many people. Well, this is false. In fact, it started with Cicero, a Greek Stoic, Stoic philosopher, uh, and who, uh, who was the first person to present this argument saying, everybody has an idea of God, therefore God must exist. It was this idea that because the, 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 the notion of deity is common to all men, therefore God must exist. And Calvin picked up on the census of Antatus from his reading of Cicero. Okay, we've only made it to five, but I've got a whole lot more, so I'm going to go a bit quicker here. Uh, the argument from the degrees of goodness, beauty, and so on. So I, I gave the argument from beauty earlier. I mentioned that earlier. Here is a slightly, it's a nuance. Here's degrees of goodness. And I'm not going to get into this right now. I'll maybe get into it a bit more when I mention it with Aquinas. But Boethius presents in his book called The Consolation of Philosophy, uh, Boethius presents an argument from beauty or the degrees of goodness and beauty, which he, which he uses to demonstrate there must exist, therefore, an ultimate, which is God, who is, the, who is good and beauty per se. Argument from the existence of truth. Augustine presents uh, a very powerful argument for the existence of God based upon the existence of truth. He starts with regular truth. There are some things that we recognize as true. And he moves from that to the existence of absolute truth to the existence of God. Uh, I mentioned contingent being before with Aristotle. Uh, Avicenna, a Muslim philosopher in the medieval ages, presents a different version of the argument from contingent being. That's why I present this here again. It's, it's, it's a similar argument, but with nuances, with a different approach. We've got four arguments from Moses Maimonides. If you read his book, uh, The Guide for the Perplexed, in the second portion of that book, he, he has a chapter where he presents four different arguments for the existence of God. We have the, the famous ontological argument. Uh, this argument uh, began with Anselm in his book, The Proslogion. And this, this argument is one of the arguments that uh, Descartes uh, then kind of picked up on. Uh, we have uh, Immanuel Kant, who's interacting with it, and a number of other uh, philosophers throughout history. In fact, this is probably one of the most philosophically um, fruitful arguments, even though most philosophers uh, actually think that this particular argument fails to demonstrate the existence of God. It is still one of the most interesting arguments and one of the most debated arguments because of uh, what, it, what you have to understand. I'm not going to get into it because it, can be get, it, can get it gets complicated quite quickly. Um, 
All right, the Kalam cosmological argument. I'm going to go over this one a bit later, so I'm not going to go into any detail now. This one starts really with the Muslim philosopher Avicenna. Uh, we have it with Al-Ghazali, and William Lane Craig is probably the most well-known contemporary uh, proponent of the Kalam cosmological argument. We have the argument from change, which is similar to the argument from movement in Thomas Aquinas, the argument from the order of efficient causality, uh, also in Aquinas, and, and actually, I'll just put these, these ones up here. These are the five ways of Thomas Aquinas. So if you pull out the Summa Theologia, or if you go online and you look up Summa Theologia, and you look at the first part of the Summa Theologia in question, uh, that's what I might hear, question uh, two, article, I think, three. I should have that right on top of, top of my head. But uh, argument from, he presents five ways to demonstrate that God exists. And uh, we have the argument from change, the argument from the order of efficient causality, the argument from the existence of contingent and necessary beings, the argument from degrees of being, goodness and justice, and the argument from final causality. Now this final, uh, I'll make a couple comments here. Uh, the order of efficient causality, efficient causality has to do with the agent, which brings about some change. So an example of this would be the mechanic who works on your car. When the mechanic changes your tire that popped, which I mentioned earlier, well, he is the efficient cause of the changing of that tire. Okay, so that's, that's what we mean by efficient cause, is the agent which brings about some change. And he'll talk about the order of efficient causality. Um, the argument from the degrees of being, goodness, and justice. So I mentioned this earlier with Boethius. Boethius has his own variation of this argument. Uh, Aquinas essentially says something along the following lines, and I'm not going to detail the whole argument here, but he says, when we talk about goodness, for example, or justice, we notice that there is a hierarchy or a, a, a degree, okay? Things are more or less good, more or less just, and so on. Well, as soon as you talk about more or less, we can't even talk about beauty, as soon as you talk about more or less, You've got to have a standard against which you're comparing them. And so when we say something is more uh, beautiful than something else, both of those are being compared against a standard. X is more beautiful than Y in comparison with Z, for, if you, just to get the idea here. And so what, that, what, our, what Aquinas is going to say there is that as we must have a, a highest or an ultimate in any comparison, that ultimate is God. So when we talk about goodness or beauty or justice, God is the standard against which we are comparing these degrees. And finally, final causality. Uh, sometimes people think this is the argument from um, intelligent design. This is false. It is not the argument from intelligent design, uh, sometimes known as the teleological argument. Uh, it is a form, for, you might say, of teleological argument because the word teleological Teleos is the, the end or the, the final, okay? So it is, a, it is a form of teleological argument, but it is not the intelligent design argument. With this argument, what Aquinas is getting at is that everything acts towards an end, even things which do not have the intelligence to determine their own end. So an end would be something like, I'm hungry, therefore I go and eat a sandwich. The Eating of the sandwich is the end towards which I act, okay? Um, even trees, even uh, 
rocks, even stars, they're acting towards an end. And I don't have time to get into why or how or all of that. But what's interesting is that they are acting towards an end without intelligence. They are not doing that on their own. It's not like the star has determined that its end is to, is to um, create heat and, and light. It just does that. And what Aquinas points out is that if anything tends towards an end without determining that end itself, then it has been determined towards that end by an intelligence. And so he gives the example of an arrow. And I, I do archery out here at my, my place. Uh, I have a compound bow. And if I just leave the arrow and the compound bow on the table, and I point them in the direction of the target, there, a really interesting thing happens. Nothing. The arrow doesn't fly. The arrow doesn't even move in any direction. It doesn't go towards the target. In order for the arrow to be shot and to move towards the target, I actually have to take the, uh, the bow and the arrow into my hand. I have to shoot the arrow. I, the intelligence, have to send the arrow to its target. And so what, what Aquinas is getting at here is that even those things which are inanimate, but which tend towards things without intelligence, do so because an intelligence points them in that direction. And we could go into more detail on that. Okay, let's keep going. We've got to, I'm, I'm not even going to get into them. There are the arguments of John Dunn Scott, a well-known uh, philosopher at the end of the middle, in the high middle ages, end of the middle ages. His arguments are, are rather um, philosophically um, opaque, uh, by which I mean they're complicated for, they're, they're complicated for philosophers. Uh, so I'm not even going to get into them. We have the cosmological argument in René Descartes. Uh, we have the Leibnizian version of the cosmological argument in Leibniz, the fine-tuning design argument, uh, which to a certain extent began with William Paley and his book on natural theology. I can rapidly explain this one. This is the essential intelligent design movement argument. This idea here is that, um, and the way William Paley describes it in his book on natural theology is if you're walking in a, in a field, and you stub your toe on a rock in the field, your immediate question is not, who put that there? In fact, you may not, you may not even have a question because <laughs> you, you expect to find rocks in a field. And so you, you may not even think how'd that get there. And yet it may be, says William Paley, that it is in fact the threshold of a house and you don't know that. An, an old house that may have been abandoned. However, if you're walking in that same field and you come across a watch, a, you know, old pocket watch, and you pick that up, your immediate question is, who made that? Why? Because you recognize a certain complexity in that watch and a, that it cannot just get there by nature. So though you may have stubbed your toe on the threshold of the house, but because you expect to find rocks in the field, you don't ask that question. With the watch, you immediately ask, who made that? How did this come to be here? Because it is endowed with a certain complexity. And then William Paley will then, in the rest of his book, pass, go through a number of interesting discoveries in his time about the natural world and say, these things are complex. These things are so complex that we should be asking the same question of these natural things that we would of the watch that we found in the field. And the answer is going to be, there must be an intelligent designer. 
That basic argument is also used today in the intelligent design movement. <clears throat> we have the argument from consciousness. In fact, I was reading, like I mentioned earlier, mentioned reading uh, Philip Melanchthon, uh, one of the uh, colleagues of Martin Luther, a first generation reformer. And Philip Melanchthon uses a version of the argument from consciousness to demonstrate the existence of God. We have the argument from reason. We find this already in Plato, but it's also in G.K. Chesterton, C.S. Lewis, and a number of other authors. I, I, I'm not even going to get into how many authors are there for the argument from reason to demonstrate the existence of God. Okay, uh, we also have the argument from morality. Uh, we see versions of this in Immanuel Kant and C.S. Lewis. The argument from joy or desire, we find that with C.S. Lewis, which is a lot of fun. I'm going to get, I'll get into those later. And many, many more. The argument from miracles, by the way, which goes all the way back to Cicero. <clears throat> but we also find with Gary Habermas. Uh, the argument from miracles is, which is, I find this interesting with Cicero. Cicero was a Greek uh, philosopher, and he's looking at historical accounts of the past and saying there are accounts of miracles in these books of history in the past. If miracles happened, God must exist. But we have good evidence that miracles happened, therefore God must exist. That's essentially the argument. Gary Habermas will present similar arguments. Gary Habermas, a well-known historian uh, and, and uh, apologist for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, offers the facts surrounding the resurrection of Jesus Christ as evidence not only for the fact that Christ resurrected from the dead, but also for the existence of God. And the list goes on and on and on. Um, I've given you 25 arguments. Some of them are variations on each other, uh, but there are more. And I honestly just decided to stop there because I figured I wouldn't have time to actually get into most of these arguments if I just kept going. So let's actually look at some of the arguments. I've summarized them as I went along, but let's look at some of the arguments here. The argument from beauty. Now, there are different forms of the argument from beauty that show up throughout history. In fact, uh, in my, my research, I've stumbled across and studied around four or five different versions of the argument from beauty and uh, maybe even more given by different people okay some of them have to do with the objective nature of beauty some of these arguments have to do with the subjective subjective nature of the experience of beauty the Cicero ciceronian style and I'm going, to, I'm going to use this type of term for all of these arguments because there's so many variations on them. The Ciceronian style of the argument from beauty is one that is very, very common. From, from Cicero onwards, we find this version of the argument from beauty in many Christian authors. Okay, this is how it goes. Premise one, if something is endowed with beauty, then that thing is made by an artist, an ordering intellect. Now, that premise might seem debatable for some people today, uh, but in order to understand this premise, we really have to get into the question of what does it mean when we say that something is beautiful? So I don't know if you can see my screen, but I have a, a beautiful coffee mug in my hands. I think it is, I personally think it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, there may be some subjective opinions on this. I think I can objectively prove that this is a beautiful uh, mug based upon a number of facts that early Greek and, and medieval thinkers would apply to beauty. So in order for something to be said to be beautiful, there's, there has to be a number of, of aspects that are true of it. Some of those aspects would include, for example, 
the idea of, uh, and I'm going to uh, use a general term, brightness or light, okay, or color. That's what, that'll be one of the aspects of beauty. And almost all ancient and medieval philosophers and theologians would agree that objective beauty involves some sort of interplay of light. Now, to prove that, we could say if we remove all light and all color, what do we have? We have absolute darkness. And in absolute darkness, we cannot say that anything is beautiful. Okay? In fact, you couldn't see anything to see if anything was beautiful. It, it's, it's absolutely dark. And most people are not actually uh, accustomed to absolute darkness, especially if you're living in Montreal or in the city. Uh, even when it's pitch, quote unquote, pitch black outside, it's very, very bright. Uh, I live out in the country, and uh, in the in the summer when the trees are have all of their leaves on them, the light from the town of Trois-Rivières is absolutely impossible to see. I can go sit in my backyard, and I would say that it is almost pitch black, but it isn't quite. Why? Because there are stars, and it is that darkness which allows us to see the beauty of the night sky. What is this beauty of the night sky? It is the light as they present themselves in the sky. And so for early medieval and ancient philosophers, that was one aspect of beauty, is this interplay of light. Another aspect would be described as symmetry, or the proper proportion of the parts of something in relationship to what that thing is. So uh, we often think about, when we, when we think about proportion, we can think about a face. So if you look at my face, and you draw a line down the middle and a line across where the eyes are, you can measure the proportion of the face. And what they would say is that we say that something is beautiful when it has proper proportion based upon what it is. Okay? Now, what's interesting is that the nature of something is determined by its artist. So if we're talking about, uh, for example, this mug, the artist determines what this is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a coffee mug. And so then we can look at this and say, are the parts of the mug where they are supposed to be? Is there proper proportion? I would submit that there is. I would also submit that there is a nice interplay of light or color in this mug. And then, I bet, I, I'm, I'm just for the fun of it, I'm going to forget what the, first, the, the last one is. But there, there is, there's one other um, thing. I believe it is the perfection. That, there we go, perfection. So we have the proper proportion and we have the perfection. That is that the thing in question has all of the parts that it's supposed to have. So my face is not missing its nose or the mug is not missing its handle or, or the bottom, for example. All of the parts of the thing are and in the thing and they're all where they're supposed to be. That's the proper proportion. And if, and if something is, can be said to have all of its parts and all of those parts are where they're supposed to be, and there is an appropriate play of color and light in that thing, then it is objectively beautiful, whether I see it as beautiful or not. Now, the point that they're going to say there is that, wait a second, if that thing is beautiful objectively, according to those three standards, it contains all of its parts, the parts are all ordered properly, and there is a right interplay of light, then, that thing must be made by an artist because we simply do not find works of art anywhere which, which lack those things which, are, which also lack an intellect. Premise two, the sensible cosmos are beautiful 
And again, we may say, well, no, but what about, and, and actually one, one philosopher, a Christian theologian, actually, Alistair McGrath, suggests that no, that's not true. Uh, in fact, uh, if you see a, the carcass of a dead antelope or a dead, uh, a dead uh, elk in the middle of an otherwise beautiful scene, it takes away the beauty of that. Okay. However, uh, the, uh, the early philosopher, Greek philosophers and Christian theologians, such as Augustine, actually respond to, to McGrath hundreds of thousands of years before, thousands of years before McGrath even thought of that counter argument. Both Aristotle and Augustine respond to the problem of ugliness in, the, in different ways. Aristotle, a non-Christian philosopher, uninspired by un, having no contact with, with, with Christian revelation or Jewish revelation, he says this, everything in, everything in the sensible cosmos is beautiful. If you see something as ugly, it's because you have not observed it from the proper perspective. So you might look at a, I don't know, a virus or a crab and say that's ugly. You're only saying that for Aristotle because you haven't looked close enough. If you get closer, you realize that there is beauty in it. Augustine goes the other direction. Augustine says, if you look at this thing and you think that it's ugly, it's because you haven't stood back far enough to observe it in, its, in, the, in the whole work of art. So an example I can give here is this. If I'm looking at the Mona Lisa and I come up really close and I see it so close that all I can see is a patch of blackness or darkness in the, in, in the thing. I don't see anything else, just a, a patch of black paint. That's not very beautiful, is it? Well, Augustine would say that's because you're looking too close. Back out. And once you see that blackness in the, first, in the context of the entire Mona Lisa, all of a sudden you'll realize that it has its place and because it is there, the whole thing is beautiful. And so Augustine says, yeah, sometimes things appear as ugly, but that's simply because we haven't seen that thing from the divine perspective. And in the divine perspective, if that thing wasn't there, the whole thing would lack in beauty. So the sensible cosmos are in fact beautiful. Conclusion, therefore the sensible cosmos were made by a divine transcendent artist. That's, the, uh, that's a general overview of the argument from beauty. We can move on. Uh, the argument from change, the, the Thomistic style. There, like I said, there are different versions of it. We'll use the one provided by Thomas Aquinas in the Summa Theologiae. First of all, it is certain and evident to the senses that something in this world is moved. Now, the, the idea here is that something changes. When we, talk, when we think about movement, we think about local movement. I and my, I and my office and sitting in my chair, but I, I move back and forth. I, like I said earlier, I see many of you moving in your screens. It is evident and certain to the senses that something is moved. Notice he doesn't say everything is moved, just something. Now he's going to draw out a principle here. Anything that is moved is moved by something other than that thing in particular. Um, I don't think I have a lighter here, do I? A lighter is one of the best examples I can give of that, where you, if I just hold a lighter in my hand, no flame is going to happen. There is no flame. Unless something other than the flame causes the flame to come into being, there will be no flame. And so what, he, what he's getting at here is that 
any particular movement, even the movement of my hand or your hand or your eyes even, that movement, so for that movement to happen, that change to happen, something else must bring it about. Uh, now this goes back to a philosophical principle about what change is. Change is the, uh, this is gonna sound very philosophical, I'm, I'm sorry I can't make it much simpler than this. Change is the actualization or the bringing into being or into act of that which is only in potency. So my hand is currently here on the screen. In potency, it can be here, 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 or any other place, but it is currently here. In order for it, the, the potency of the local movement of my hand to come about, something must move the hand. That's the point of premise two. If, however, um, that other thing which moves is itself moved, then it must be moved by another, and this by another, and so on. Now, if I was if I was with you guys in the in the in a, in a, 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 set, a, a room, what I would do is I would have a desk in front of me, and I'd put an eraser on the desk, and then I would take my pencil and I would move the eraser with my pencil. Now, what is being moved? The eraser. What is moving the eraser? The pencil. Is the pencil itself moved? The answer would be yes. Then what this this third point is saying is that. If the thing, the mover, is itself moved, then it is moved by another. What is moving the pencil? My hand. And, and we can go on and go on and go on. And this is the point. And this by another. If each mover is itself moved, then it is moved by another. And this creates a regress of movers. Think, 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 just going back and back and back and back. Aquinas then suggests this regress cannot be eternal. It cannot proceed ad infinitum and there are different reasons for that uh, one of them being uh, an, an infinite regress of movers would result in there not being this movement right now therefore it is necessary to arrive at or come to a first mover which is not moved in any way or another way of putting this a first um cause which brings about change, which is itself unchanged in any way. Now, what's interesting to note about this is that with this conclusion, not only do we arrive at the existence of a first cause, we also arrive at the existence of a first unmoved cause. Now to be unmoved is to be, in other words, immutable. We have therefore arrived at the, the existence of an immutable cause of all that exists of all that has changed. And then we can go on from there. What's interesting about that particular argument is that I can then ask, what is time? Time is the measurement of change. If time is the measurement of change and this first cause is not changed in any way, then it is therefore not temporal. It is therefore eternal. And I can just keep going to deduce from that perfection, uh, goodness, and so on. Um, but we'll stop with that because that, that I can just, just go on for too long with that one. Uh, the argument from desire. Uh, this is one of, my, one of the arguments, one argument which I find very interesting. There is some resemblance with the argument from beauty, but it is, again, a different approach. Uh, and, and Lewis doesn't purport to prove necessarily the existence of God per se. However, the conclusion of his argument does point in that direction. This is how his argument goes. First of all, if man has a natural desire, 
then that which can satisfy this desire necessarily exists. He gives a couple of examples. Man has a desire to eat. It's a natural desire. There must therefore exist something for which to, to, to fulfill that natural desire. And you can look at and kind of examine all of our desires. And anything that is a natural desire, there, must, there exists something to fulfill that desire. Examples like such as food, drink, shelter, love, sex, and so on. All of these would be natural desires, and something does in fact exist which fulfills all of those desires. Premise one would be true. Most people wouldn't deny premise one. Premise two, man has natural desires. That also seems fairly straightforward. Yeah, okay, man does desire naturally to eat. Now, what he desires to eat may differ from person to person, but the desire to eat is the same in all. Therefore, that which can satisfy these desires necessarily exists. Seems fairly straightforward. Where is he going with this? Well, if man has a natural desire which can be satisfied by nothing in the sensible cosmos, says C.S. Lewis, then something transcending the sensible cosmos, that is something other than the universe which can satisfy this desire necessarily exists. Now, C.S. Lewis is recognizing that this premise is going to be a bit more debatable. Is there a natural desire in man for something other than what is available for him in the sensible universe? So C.S. Lewis is going to provide a number of um, important authors as proof of this premise. And some of the examples include uh, Cicero. Remember I mentioned him earlier with the universal desire or the universal idea of God. He'll give a number of poets who talk about this, this uh, joy or this feeling of transcendence. Even, even, the atheist, uh, even the atheist poets recognize this desire for something beyond themselves. And they call it different names. But it is almost inevitably always something which transcends the natural and sensible order. In fact, most philosophers prior to the modern period recognized that there was in man a universal idea and even desire for the divine. That's what C.S. Lewis is getting here. And this is natural to man, is what they are going, he's going to argue. Whether we like it or not, regardless of what we call it, it's there. Now, if it's true that there is a natural desire which can be satisfied by nothing else in the cosmos, premise five, then something transcending the sensible cosmos which can satisfy this desire necessarily exists. And C.S. Lewis is going to say that thing, that which transcends everything can be nothing other than God. If it's just another part of the universe, it doesn't qualify because it wouldn't be something which transcends. It's gotta be over and above and beyond. The, the Kalam cosmological argument is one of the most well-known arguments for the existence of God, uh, partially due to the popularity uh, and the popularizing of this argument by William Lane Craig. It is very simple in its style and relatively easy to defend. Premise one, everything that begins to exist has a cause. This premise has been mutilated by neo-atheists in ways which, I, which you could not even imagine and which even is kind of painful to talk about. Uh, one of the most popular mutilations of this premier, this first uh, premise, would be something along the lines: everything that exists has a cause. And then, the, then, and then the person having thus mutilated the first premise, removing the 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 important word begins, 
Having removed that, they then ask the question, well, does that mean that God has a cause? Because God apparently exists, and everything that exists has a cause. Well, if that's what the first premise was, then, yeah, there might be a problem with the argument. But that is not what the first premise says. The first premise says that anything that begins to exist has a cause. This is essentially a relatively simple explanation of what we call the principle of causality, which is otherwise resumed as <clears throat> nothing can bring about nothing, or from nothing, nothing comes. Second, the universe began to exist. Now, uh, this is something that maybe Aristotle would have disagreed with. Aristotle thought that the universe was eternal. Plato would disagree with Aristotle. Plato thought that the sensible cosmos did begin to exist. We find that in his works of Timaeus. Uh, and there has been some debate on this in, in philosophy prior to modern science. However, um, interestingly enough, with the proposition and general accept, acceptance of what we call the Big Bang Theory, with the, with, the, with the proposition of that theory and the general acceptance of that theory, almost everybody now admits that the sensible cosmos began to exist. And the scientific evidence for that second premise is overwhelming. We, talk, we can talk about different, um, there, there are a number of different types of evidence for this second thing, such as uh, redshift and so on. And I'm not going to get into all of the evidence for this. You can look at some of William Lane Craig's well-known work on the subject. There are multiple debates by William Lane Craig on this. He'll use different, uh, different uh, proofs to demonstrate this fact, including the notion of time. If the second premise is true, the universe began to exist, then the third premise follows necessarily. Therefore, the universe has a cause. But you might say, well, could the cause of the universe not be something within the universe itself? No, because of premise two. If the universe began to exist, then whatever brought the universe into existence could not be the way part of the universe, because the universe itself as a whole began to exist. Now, if, if to say that the universe or a part of the universe brought the universe into existence would be kind of like saying that the house that I am in right now, or at least a part of the house, brought itself into existence. The basement of the house brought the rest of the house into existence. But wait a second, is not the basement a part of the house? So when I say the house had a, began to exist, therefore the house has a cause, we cannot attribute that causality to a part of the house. This seems to force us to the recognition that something outside of the universe, something which transcends the universe, is what caused the universe. Argument for morality. There are different versions of this. I'm actually going to give you a couple. Uh, and, and, and I take it I, I have, a, Doug uh, was very nice and gave me some extra time here. So um, I, I, I think I will be able to cover everything I was hoping to cover. I'm going to give you two versions. There's a popular version and there's a, a more complicated version. Um, the popular version, it can be found uh, in numerous different writings. And uh, I'm actually going to, to uh, prove the popular version based upon the writings of atheist authors. Premise one, if there is no God, 
then there are no moral truths. Uh, this is basically Nietzsche, but we find the same argument in Dostoevsky as well. And we find the same argument with Sartre and many uh, important modern atheist philosophers. They make the argument, if there is no God, then there are no moral truths. Okay? This is what the atheists willingly and happily admit. Premise, true, premise two, there are moral truths. Richard Dawkins is an example of, a, of an author who thinks so. And if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're not sure about that, just go to his Twitter account and you'll find plenty of claims about moral truths. How about most Canadian politicians over the last year? Why do we need to respect social distancing and wear our masks? Because you have a moral prerogative. If you don't, you could be the reason why someone in your surrounding dies from this virus. You have a moral prerogative to act in a certain way. So there are moral truths. If there were no moral truths, then the government could not give us any type of fine or prison sentence for breaking certain claims that they present as morally obligatory. But we don't have to go to Canadian politics. We can just accept the word of Richard Dawkins that there are in fact some moral truths. And, and most people are willing to accept that. Uh, killing babies for fun is morally wrong. Most people would accept that claim as morally true, period. Well, if the first premise is true and the second premise is also true, interestingly enough, the conclusion which follows is, therefore, there is a God. In a, in a conditional proposition, if, if you deny the consequent, the antecedent must also be denied. The denial of the antecedent of premise one there is no God. The denial of that would be there is not no God, which is which in in the positive or the, the affirmative would be there is a God. Double negative makes a positive. So based upon the claims of atheist, atheist uh, philosophers and thinkers themselves, there must be necessarily a God. Now let's look at the other version. This one here uh, is the argument from reality. This is more Lewisian style. If there are objective moral standards, then there is a moral law giver. Now, let's go back to Canadian politics. If there's a law, then someone put it there. And this just applies across the board. I mean, even for, even for sports uh, or, or, or board games, if you've played Monopoly, there are rules to follow. And nobody in their right mind thinks those rules for the game, the board game of Monopoly or the rules for the game of soccer or the rules related to COVID restrictions, nobody in their right mind thinks that those rules, those standards, just popped into being out of nowhere without a moral lawgiver. For premise one seems fairly straightforward. But wait a second, there are objective moral standards. We've already discussed that in the previous uh, version of the moral argument. Richard Dawkins and most atheist philosophers would agree with this. Premise three, therefore there is a moral law giver. Let's look, look at the final argument for morality. There are more, I say final. The, the last one I'm gonna, I'm gonna present to you guys today. This is Kantian style. Uh, if you have taken philosophy in Quebec, uh, in other words, if you've been to Sejep in Quebec uh, or studied philosophy, maybe at university, Immanuel Kant's a fairly well-known, fairly popular philosopher uh, nowadays. I was just talking with a friend of mine, a fellow 
Christian philosopher who, who lives in Trois-Rivières, and he has recently uh, had his students in Sejep studying Immanuel Kant. Kant is well known. One of the things that's interesting is that a lot of uh, Sejep philosophers and professors of philosophy at university, they conveniently uh, forget that Immanuel Kant, though he rejects most of the traditional arguments for the existence of God, does present an argument based upon morality to demonstrate the existence of God in his work on, on, um, on morality. <clears throat> this is essentially how he does it. I'm, I'm simplifying it here. Uh, for those of you who, have, who may have read Immanuel Kant in the past, maybe for a philosophy course or something, you know he is uh, very complicated to read. Now, here, here is how the argument essentially goes. First of all, if there is no God rewarding the righteous and punishing the wicked, then all moral standards are ultimately meaningless. Now, you remember what we talked about in the first popular version of the moral argument where we quoted Nietzsche? If there, if there is no God, then there, is, there are also no moral standards. This is a very similar style of argument, but Kant is, is a bit more complicated in how he presents it. He, he's talking about the, that moral standards are meaningless. If there is no God rewarding the righteous and punishing the wicked, then moral standards are meaningless. And, and I might you know, take a quick parenthesis here. A friend of mine who I unfortunately only get to see about once a year, though COVID has again put a monkey wrench on those plans, uh, by the name of David Wood. Uh, he is an apologist in the United States. He does a lot of work on, on YouTube and interacts mostly with uh, Muslim apologetics. However, I would invite you to, if, you, if you're interested in this, go take a look at his uh, YouTube video. If I remember correctly, it's called Why I Am No Longer an Atheist or something along those lines. Go, go online, look up David Wood um, conversion um, video where he talks about how he became a Christian. He had grown up as an, as an atheist. And he'll tell you in his conversion story how as a young atheist, he realized rather rapidly that if there's no God, then there are not only are there no moral standards, but morality has, is meaningless. He can invent his own morality. And he wanted to prove that. And so he decided to uh, uh, attempt to murder his father to show that society, to, to show to society that he had no, the society could not put any moral restraints on him. And so in order to prove that, he, he, he attempted to murder his father. Uh, his father lived. So when David Lord was eventually caught, uh, he was only condemned to prison for attempted murder. And uh, he did eventually come to Christ, but he gives that part of his life as an illustration of this is what atheism entails. If atheism is true, if there is no God rewarding the righteous and punishing the wicked, then all moral standards are ultimately meaningless. And if that's true, then atheists should not be following any moral standards other than the ones that they individually decide upon. And to condemn anyone for not following your own moral standards would itself be immoral. Premise two, if moral standards make genuine claims on our actions, then they are not meaningless. So for example, if we just take a very, very simple moral standard, it is wrong to kill children for fun. That makes a genuine claim on our actions such that anyone who would do such a thing would not only be seen as immoral, but as a immoral monster. 
So moral standards do seem to make genuine claims on our actions. Well, if that's true, then note, moral standards are not meaningless. The denial of the consequent of the first premise. If we deny the consequent of the first premise, the conclusion follows, moral standards are not meaningless. Therefore, there is a God rewarding the righteous and punishing the wicked. So Immanuel Kant arrives at the same conclusion as many Christian and non-Christian philosophers who preceded him. From basic observations about our, our, our sensible cosmos, we arrive at the conclusion from observing the effects, we observe the existence of a cause, and that cause is what we call God. Um, I might conclude with just the following question. Is any one of these arguments better than another? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologia thought that the first way, the argument from change, was the most evident because everyone observes change. Others have found the argument from miracles more convincing. Others have found the argument from truth with Augustine or the ontological argument. Different people are convinced by different arguments based often upon their experience. I would submit that none of these arguments are particularly better than the others. If the premises are true and the conclusion follows from the premises, the conclusion is also true. The question then becomes, do any of these arguments convince you or the person that you know? And in that case, one or more of these arguments may be better for convincing a person, though they are not objectively per se better than any other. Some are easier to prove. Uh, some take more background knowledge, uh, such as some of the arguments in, in the Summa Theologiae often takes more background knowledge most people don't have. But other than that, I would suggest that what makes an argument better than another is often a question of the person you're interacting with. What do, the, do these arguments convince them or not? And on that point, I will leave it to any questions you may have. And uh, 